Hey friends, my name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I want to welcome you to our podcast. We're working to build a community position to experience God in daily life. Our weekly teaching is one piece of that work. So as you listen to this week's message, my prayer is that you would hear God inviting you to respond to his love and his desire for you. For more information, you can visit ridgeline.church. All right, well, let's jump into this new series, Invitations in the Desert. And to start, I want you to take just a moment and to consider with me what kind of descriptive words come to mind when you hear the word desert. So maybe just picture a desert in your mind or look at the one that's up on the screen. You could do that as well if you hate using your imagination. But when you hear the word desert, what kind of descriptive words come to mind for you? My guess would be, some of us think, I think one of the most obvious one would be like the word dry. Maybe you think of the word dead or void. We think of this sort of vast emptiness. Maybe you think of the word lonely. In general, when we think about the word desert, And when we picture a desert in our minds, we think of an environment that is prone to be very harsh, to be dry, and to be difficult. What we don't think about very often is an environment that is marked by flourishing, that is is marked by vibrancy and by life. And because of that, I think it is such a pointed and and, and potent description of a very particular season in the Christian life, a season that for hundreds and thousands of years, followers of God have been describing as a desert season of faith. Now, the thing I've noticed about when we find ourselves as followers of Jesus in a desert season is that we are prone to think we're the only ones in that season. And that's especially true if you're not deeply integrated into a Christian community that is really working to live in the open and be honest about what is going on in life. What happens is you come in here a couple times a month or maybe even every single week, but you're not really connected to other people. And so you look around the room and you think, these people seem fine. They seem to have it together generally. They, they seem pretty happy. They seem to be pretty excited about their relationship with God. So it's just me. I'm the only one in the desert. And that's why I think so many of you would be so shocked if you could read the prayer requests that I get to read every single Monday morning. Because they are just littered with person after person after person who would describe their spiritual life right now as dry and difficult. And I think about how many conversations that I have over the course of a week with people in our community who would describe their current spiritual state as dry and difficult. God feels absent right now. Or at at very best, silent and not speaking. Prayer feels labored. Scripture feels, your reading of it feels maybe inconsistent, or we feel bad saying this, but it's true. Oftentimes it feels boring to read the Bible. 
So I've got bad news and good news, and we'll start with the bad news, okay? The bad news is, this is a very common season in the Christian life. And it is uncomfortable, and it is difficult. There has never been a follower of God who has followed him for any amount of time that did not at some point in their journey find themselves in a desert season. And so if you are not currently in a desert season, make no mistake, a time is coming when you will enter into one. And it's important that you know that so that you're not surprised when it happens. So that's the bad news. It's common, it's uncomfortable, and it's difficult. Hard stop. Now the good news is, the fact that it is so common should bring us some measure of comfort. Because what that indicates to us is that it is normal. I think oftentimes when we find ourselves in a desert season, we, we are kind of like shocked, feeling like something must be wrong. And the belief that finding yourself in a desert season indicates that something is wrong, all that really means is that we don't really understand how normative desert seasons are in the Christian life. So it's normal. And I believe it is a unique opportunity to be formed by Jesus. Because the good news is you are never alone in the desert. Never. Even when God feels far, even when he seems silent, even if you really genuinely in those quiet moments wonder if God has in fact finally abandoned you, he has not. He is near and he is working and he is inviting you to respond to these places that he is working. And if you will say yes, then this desert season can give way to new life. And so in this time that we are all in together, when so many of us probably identify experientially with this description of a desert season of the spiritual life, there is new life held out to us in the midst of it. And so here's kind of the overarching premise when I think about this series. This is the premise that kind of hangs over it as a banner. I, I deeply, deeply believe that there is never a season, including a desert season, there is never a season, a situation, or a circumstance in which God is not inviting us to be formed by him. Now, if that's true, think about how significant that is. That you will never find yourself in a season that God is not inviting you to be formed by him. You will never find yourself in a situation in which what God is actually doing is inviting you to be formed by him. You will not find yourself in any circumstance, no matter how small or how difficult, in which God is not inviting you to be formed by him. Now, depending on the tradition that you grew up in, or maybe you're here and you're just exploring Christian faith for the first time, this language of formation might seem kind of foreign to you. I grew up uh, in Christian churches, and the uh, notion of spiritual formation is not something that was talked about a lot in the churches that I grew up in. And so because this is so much of what God is always doing in our life, I think it's really, really critical. We have a strong working definition for what spiritual formation is. And so the best that I've found is by a man named M. Uh, Maholland. 
And he was a professor. He's passed away now, uh, sadly. He was pretty old. It's not, I mean, it's what happens, you know. He wasn't young or anything like that. He lived a very long, full life. He wrote an amazing book called Invitation to a Journey. And uh, in that, he defines spiritual formation like this. He says, spiritual formation is a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. Spiritual formation is a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. And I really am hoping that over the next five weeks that we're going to spend together, that that would be something that we would commit to memory and more importantly, would really take root in our hearts. So let's, let's read this together one more time and let's read it out loud together. All right. This is always a gamble. This either goes really good or you guys leave me lonely and hanging and I would invite you to please help this morning. All right. Let's, let's read this together. Spiritual formation is a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. That was pretty good. We'll call that our dry run. Let's go one more time. Spiritual formation is a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. Now here's why that's so significant. Everything in your life is about that. Everything in your life is about your formation. Every season, every situation, and every circumstance is about that. Formation is the context in which our entire lives take place. So if you've ever had a season where you wonder, man, what is God doing right now? That When you have tension in your relationships, anybody had any of that in the last couple of years? And you wonder, man, what, what is going on? What is this about? It's about that. When your life is marked by blessing and you have one of those rare seasons that just feels comfortable and you are aware of God's goodness and everything just feels to kind of like it's rolling along and you, man, what is that? It's about this. Everything in our lives is about that. Formation is the context in which our lives take place. And so what I want to do with this series is I want to spend five weeks looking at five specific invitations from Jesus, particularly in the context of the desert season that many of us either have, are, or will experience at some point in our lives. So five weeks, five different invitations. And the first one that we're going to look at this morning is really the gate to the rest of them. If we don't embrace and say yes to this invitation, the other four don't matter. And so this morning, I believe that God is inviting us to embrace genuine faith. And so to that end, we're going to spend our time together looking at a story in Mark chapter 9. So if you have a Bible or an app that you read on and you want to get there, go to Mark chapter 9. But before we get there, I want to I talk just for a minute about faith. The reason that I think it's important that we set this up a little bit is that Christianity is a faith-based way of life. 
If we miss faith, if we don't understand faith, if we don't have a clear category practically and experientially for faith, we cannot live in a transforming relationship with Jesus. And we know that because of how frequently the scriptures talk about faith. You are hard pressed to find a page in the Bible that does not make some mention of or provide some description of faith. I have just a few examples for you this morning. The first one is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse one. The writer of Hebrews says this, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Later on in verse six, he says, now without faith, think about how significant this is. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. Furthermore, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And then finally, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we read, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. So here's the thing. As a Christian, faith is the air that we breathe. Which is why I would argue it is the gate to these other invitations, and it is the first and most significant invitation that is put before us in the desert. Embrace genuine faith. But anytime we're talking about faith, especially in modern Christian culture, we, we face a pretty significant problem because so much of the teaching and the writing about faith is focused on the size of it. And this has especially been perpetuated by what's referred to as prosperity theology or the prosperity gospel, which is the notion that if you just have enough faith, you somehow obligate God to do whatever it is that you want him to do. And so he is like this cosmic vending machine. Faith is the price that you pay. And then you get to dictate to him what he is to spit out to you. And it's not a stretch to say that that is an absolute heresy. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not describe that. But that has been used to, and I would argue has informed so much of the teaching about faith. And so because you have to have enough faith to get God to do what you want him to do, so much of the teaching about faith is focused on the size of it. So there are books and sermons and seminars that are all about how to have great faith how to have big faith, how to have huge faith. And what we learn from Jesus in Mark chapter 9 is that the substance of faith matters far more than the size of it. When Jesus talks about faith throughout the Gospels, his emphasis is virtually never on the size of it. It's always about the substance of it. And so this morning, I want to look at a place, one of the many places that he teaches us about this in Mark chapter 9. Now to set this up, here's what's happening. We're about halfway through Jesus' earthly ministry at this point in Mark chapter 9. And we are at a point in his ministry when everything is growing. The disciples' uh, participation in his mission is growing. 
So they are just getting back from the first time that Jesus sends them out to preach and to cast out demons and to heal people, and they are fired up. They're like, we're not just watching anymore, we're actually participating. So their participation is growing. The crowds are growing. And as the crowds grow, the conflict that Jesus is experiencing with the religious elite, the religious establishment of his day, that conflict is growing. And his message that he is conveying, particularly to his disciples, is also growing specifically in complexity and in challenge. And that Jesus has begun over and over again to tell them that he's going to die. And furthermore, he's telling them, if you want to follow me, you have to die to yourself every single day. And the problem with that is that absolutely did not integrate with their Messiah script. They had this script in their mind that Jesus was going to come as this military Messiah, and he was going to provide them freedom through power. So Jesus was going to come, the Messiah was going to come and throw off Rome, and they were going to chase everybody out of Israel that was not a part of their nation, and that that was God's plan for the Messiah. And so then Jesus comes onto the, to the scene, and they love the fact that he's talking about his kingdom coming, but then he starts to say he's going to die, and that they need to die to themselves every day, and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is significantly different than what we anticipated. They anticipated freedom through power, and Jesus called them to freedom through death. And so he takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and they experience what's called his transfiguration. His very appearance changes. He shines in a way that he's almost blinding to look at. They see Jesus talking to Elijah and to Moses, who, by the way, had been dead for like a super long time, so that was a weird moment. And then maybe most, most importantly, they hear God the Father affirm Jesus as God the Son. And then he gives them a very specific point of instruction. He says, listen to him, which I think is really significant because they had this way of like editing the things that Jesus was saying. We love the kingdom come part. This death thing, let's just table that. And so the father says, listen to him. And so they have this amazing experience, the three of them with Jesus up on this mountain. And as we come to Mark nine, and we drop in on verse 14, they're coming down off the mountain and we get a description of what they experience immediately after this. So look with me at verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and they ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing with them about? So we kind of have these three players that, that as they come down off the mountain, they experience. And it this description to me reads kind of like a schoolyard fight. So you have this big crowd of people that are around Jesus' disciples that were not up on the mountain, and then you have these scribes that are arguing with them about something. And I love the way that Jesus almost immediately seems to step into protection mode, and he addresses the scribes and says, what are you arguing with them about? Which has this kind of like, how about you pick on someone your own size kind of vibe. 
He's like, no, 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 you're not, this isn't going to go down with them. If you want to talk about this, you talk to me about it. And so he says, what are you arguing about? And then comes the response. Look at verse 17. Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. And so it's interesting here that Jesus addresses his question, what are you arguing with them about, to the scribes, but it's not the scribes that answer the question. Instead, this desperate father of a demon-possessed boy steps forward to explain the situation to them. And I think it's important to pause at a point like this and acknowledge that especially to modern ears, Anytime we read a description of something involving some sort of demonic activity, that we have this sort of skepticism that rises up inside of us. Because we live in a day and an age that we really struggle to believe in a spiritual world in addition to the physical world that we all experience every single day. And so every time I read stories like this, I think about that incredible line at the end of the movie, The Usual Suspects where Kevin Spacey says the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And I think that's important because when we read these stories and we write this off as like, well, this is like an old book. The demon stuff isn't really real. Then we leave ourselves ignorant of an entire reality that exists. The scriptures are painfully clear. There's a lot in the Bible that's confusing, amen? But one of the things that's not very confusing is the Bible paints a very clear picture of two very distinct worlds that are also interwoven with one another. The physical world that we experience and a very real spiritual realm. And it's important that we embrace both of those things and labor to understand how they function together. And I was actually reading the story last week, and I was thinking about when I was in high school, I think I was a freshman or a sophomore, and I was at a summer camp. I didn't go to very many summer camps as a kid, um, but I remember going to this one in high school, and we had a, a gathering one of the nights, and someone, just like a church service, someone taught, and we worshiped, and then there was a time of prayer at the end. And this young girl, who was about my age, freshman, sophomore, came forward for prayer, and, and immediately experienced an episode that was almost identical to what is described here. So just imagine being like a 14, 15-year-old kid, and a girl your age comes forward, and as she was being prayed over, she, a demonic uh, power threw her to the ground. She started to scream, to speak in a voice different. I mean, we're talking like the exorcist. Like I was just like, I, I, I was here for the girls and the games, this is next level. I did not know this is like what church camp was. So I was super free. So counselors came, took all the rest of us out of the room. And I remember being in the top bunk in my cabin, still being able to hear this girl scream. And they prayed for her and they prayed for her. And eventually, as is going to happen here, she was released from whatever this demonic presence was in her life. And I remember seeing her at breakfast the next morning. She was super happy and she looked really tired. <laughs> that's like, that's what's etched in my mind. Like that girl had a workout last night. 
And so I say that just, just by way of saying like, this stuff happens. And you may not have ever seen it. And you may not have ever experienced it, but make no mistake, I actually think one of the most dangerous situations that we, can be, that we could be in is to never experience something like this and as a result of it, think that this stuff doesn't happen. Because whether or not we experience an episode as dramatic as this does not change the fact that we have a very real enemy that is working in our lives for our destruction. And we need to be aware of that so that we would humbly cling to Jesus in the midst of it so he will protect us and to see us through. And so this dad steps forward and he explains the source of this dispute, which was that his disciples could not deliver this boy, which is interesting because they're just coming back from like a super successful ministry trip where one of the main things they'd been doing is helping to free people from demonic activity in their lives. But then they encounter this boy and they cannot seem to help him in any way. Look at verse 19. He replied to them, so this is Jesus. Jesus replied to them, you unbelieving generation, which doesn't sound super encouraging. How long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And so they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So a couple things to note there. First, I think it's important to note Jesus' frustration. So Jesus is, and we're going to see him continue to be in this very story. Jesus was intensely compassionate. One of the most constant descript descriptions of his character through his earthly ministry is compassion and kindness and mercy and grace. And Jesus got frustrated. And since my base emotion is frustration, I find immense comfort in this one place. But Jesus looks, it's important, I think, to see that Jesus is not directing his frustration at their failure, but at the source of it which was unbelief. There was something about their failure that we're going to see the root of it in just a few moments, but something about their failure to be able to help this boy that was rooted in unbelief. I mean, imagine being Jesus. Think about all the miracles that he's performed at this point. Think about all the teaching that he has provided, the host of things that not just the disciples, but also these crowds had seen, and they're still like, mm, I don't know about this. That had to have been maddening after a while. Three years of proving himself over and over and over again, and people still aren't sure. So let me just tell you, like if you struggle with faith, you should find some comfort in that. Because oftentimes we think, well, if I would have just seen the miracles that they did, I would never struggle with my faith. Well, clearly, that's not the case. So Jesus is understandably frustrated, but he does not allow that frustration to keep him from being compassionate and from helping. So this dad pleads, man, if you can do anything, please have compassion and help us. And notice Jesus' response in verse 23. Jesus said to them, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe 
Help my unbelief. Two things there I think are amazing. The first is that Jesus says, everything will be possible for the one who believes. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, there's this question that rises up in me that I then think, well, then what am I supposed to do with the fact that God oftentimes does not do what I ask him to do? And why is that? Like, why are there times in our lives that we provide what even might look like a very good request and God says no? What are we to make of that? And the truth is, there are a handful of reasons that God says no at times. Three come to mind for me. One is unbelief. That's an issue that we see here, that God did not respond to the request of the disciples because there was something broken in their belief, something broken in their faith. Another example of that would be in Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, where there's an entire village that does not believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And as a result, the text tells us Jesus could not work miracles there because of their unbelief. But that's not the only reason that sometimes God says no, which is important because again, the whole prosperity theology has shamed and beaten Christians up for years with the notion that if you're not getting what you're asking from God, it's because you don't have enough faith. What a horrible thing to lay on already hurting people. Especially when that's not the only biblical category that we have. Another one would be that sometimes God says no to the things that we ask because he is trying to nurture deeper dependence in us on him. An example of that would be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when the apostle Paul tells a story of a time when he pleaded with Jesus three times to remove some thorn in his flesh that we don't even, we don't know what that was, but some hardship that caused him significant stress and struggle. Three times he asked Jesus to take it away. And guess what Jesus said? He said, no, but he provided a reason. He said, no, because there was something about that thorn that was meant to fuel dependence on Jesus in Paul so that he could experience a deeper degree of God's strength working in him. And so sometimes God says no to things in order to nurture deeper dependence in us. And then there are other times where God simply has a higher plan than what we are asking for. And we see an example of this in Jesus himself. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can read about it in Mark chapter 14. The night he's arrested, the night before, he would be beaten and crucified. He pleads with the Father, again, three times for a different plan. He says, take this cup of suffering from me. There has to be another way that we can go about this. And guess what the Father says? He says, no. Because this is the way. Not to quote the Mandalorian, but <laughs> that's essentially what he says. And so can, I just, can, I, can, we, can we just like humble ourselves a little bit? If the father said no to one of Jesus' prayers, maybe we should be okay occasionally with him saying no to ours. Because the issue certainly was not Jesus' faith. It was simply that the father had a higher and different plan. And so sometimes God says no, but the general principle that Jesus is conveying here in this story 
is that God responds to genuine faith inside of us. And so this man responds and he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. This has to be one of the most human, honest descriptions of what it feels like to have this conflict of faith inside of us. And we're like, I believe, not all the way, but some of the way. And I think it's so, so significant that even though this is not a big faith, it was a genuine one, which is why Jesus responds the way that we see him respond in verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse so that many said he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him and he stood up. So think about this experience for a second. Jesus delivers this boy. But here's, here's what I was like super struck by this week. Think about that moment right after Jesus speaks to the demon, it comes out and this kid goes rigid and everybody thinks he's dead. And yes, Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him up. But think about that gap between the deliverance and Jesus taking him by the hand and lifting him up. There was a moment in time in which everyone around was looking at that situation going, that kid's dead. And one of the commentators I was reading made this amazing, just kind of offhanded comment that I can't get out of my head for like the last two weeks. He just said, sometimes when we come to Jesus for healing, things get worse before they get better. And here's why that's so significant. Sometimes, especially in desert seasons, we come to Jesus pleading for help. And then maybe you've had this experience where it seems like everything in life gets worse. And you're like, I got to stop praying. <laughs> Every time I press into God, life seems to get worse. And so what I would encourage you with, if you're feeling that right now, if you are in a moment in time or a season in time in which it seems like things are worse as you have pressed in, just wait because God's not done. But sometimes it will appear as though things have gotten worse before they get better. And so Jesus gathers together with his disciples. They've gone into a house in verse 28, and his disciples ask him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus says to them, this kind can only come out by nothing but prayer. Just a weird answer. Like if you, if you read what has been written about this passage and this response in particular, there isn't tremendous agreement about why Jesus re responds this way. What there is agreement about is that it's a weird response. This kind can only come out by prayer. So here's my best crack at it. If you think about what prayer is, prayer is by definition dependent faith. It is you coming to God and saying that there is something in your life that is beyond the scope of your control and your capability. But the very act of faith, or very act of prayer is an acknowledgement that to some degree you trust that it's not beyond the scope of God's capability and his control. 
And so there was something in the way that the disciples were coming at this particular issue that was absent of dependent faith. So perhaps, we don't know for sure, but perhaps they were coming off this high of having this very fruitful ministry season, and then they step into this and they're like, we are starting to get awesome at this. So we're going to just deal with this demon on our own. And there's another time when that happens in the book of Acts, that people try to cast out demons by their own strengths, and the demons beat them up so bad, the text literally says they ran away naked. That's a great way to know you lost a fight. (laughs) When you run away, you got no pants on, you did not win. So something in the way they responded in this situation lacked faith and belief. So bringing all of this together now, as we sit, so many of us even right now, in a desert season, but desiring to step into a formational one marked by healing, we have to do so by faith. And so the question is, how do we go about nurturing genuine faith? Because it is something that we can actually nurture. So I have a couple of practical suggestions for you this morning on how to nurture genuine faith. The first is to grow to know Jesus deeply. Grow to know Jesus deeply. I would argue that in Western culture, in American culture in particular, we have a very distorted view of who Jesus is and what he's like. And it's getting worse. And the reason that we are seeing this mass schism right now taking place in the American church is because we have for so long gotten away from the biblical description of who Jesus is and what he's like, and we have sort of created this one of our own that is creepily, is that a word? Integrated with politics, that we have this view of Jesus that is not the biblical one. And that horribly destroys our relationship with him. And so one way we nurture faith is we need to become acquainted with the Jesus of Scripture. And so if it is not already a part of your regular, even daily practice, I would just encourage you to always be reading slowly through the Gospels, looking at what Jesus is doing, what he's saying, how he's responding, what he conveys about his heart, and allow Scripture to be the source that shapes the way that you view who he is. Because as we become more and more acquainted with who he is, I promise you, it is going to cultivate and to nurture and to grow faith inside of us. So number one, grow to know Jesus deeply. Secondly, practice daily gratitude. I know that sounds like super hippy-dippy and every self-help book is going to tell you, you need to keep a gratitude journal. And the reason that they say that is because it has a very powerful way of shaping one's attitude toward what happens in life. And I I agree with that, and I think that that's really good. And I think that there's something deeper in that as well. As we cultivate gratitude, and specifically as we make the connection that all these things that we have to be grateful for are being given to us by God, it will help us begin to see what a loving, good, caring father that we have And it will begin to instill deeper and deeper faith inside of us. So cultivate daily gratitude. And then finally, number three, keep a record of life with Jesus. I do this through my journal, daily sit down, and I write and talk to God about what's going on in my life, what I'm struggling with, what I'm worrying about, where I'm hurting. 
about what I hear him saying to me, about things that I'm seeing in scripture. And the way that I think about that is that I'm keeping this record of life with God. This week when we were away on our family vacation, uh, we were taking pictures all the time. And we had this shared group photo that we would put those photos in. And even yesterday, we're sitting at the airport looking through those pictures, reliving so many of these memories that just took place. And our journal, whether it's your phone or like an actual handwritten journal, whatever that is, provides us the same thing. We can go back and we can see the ways in which God has been faithful to us. And that nurtures more and more genuine faith inside of us. My point is that finding new life in dry seasons is going to require at least two things from us, patience and intention. We have to be patient with the fact that God is doing something in every season, in every situation, and in every circumstance, including the desert seasons. These seasons often don't come and go quickly. And so we have to be patient. And the quicker that we can surrender to what it is that God is doing in this season, the more content, contentment and peace we can experience in the midst of it. But it's, always, it's also going to require intention. We are being invited to things in this season. First and foremost, we are being invited to genuine faith. And again, the substance of our faith matters so much more than the size. So the question that I want to put to you this morning and ask you to consider for just a couple of minutes is how can you nurture genuine faith this week? Spirit, I pray that as we sit with that question and all you've said to us this morning, would you give us clarity? Lord, I pray that you would bring resonance where you would have us to focus attention and to seek to nurture this genuine faith. And Lord, we are always this mixture of belief and unbelief. And so I thank you, Lord, that you're not looking for our faith to be perfect. You are looking for it to be genuine. You're not looking for it to be massive. You're looking for it to be sincere. And Lord, the reality is, as we find ourselves, so many of us in a desert season, we are desperate for your help. And so like the man in Mark 9, we ask that you would help us, that you would heal us, that you would renew us, that you would revive us, that you would give us patience, that you would give us the strength to endure as our faith is tested and tried. Lord, only you can do that. And so we ask that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.